Despite the terrible comforters, Job finally gets to bring his case before God, but things don't go the way that he was hoping. Join us in this episode as we look at the conversation between Job and God and see the conclusion of the court session. Welcome to the History of the Bible podcast. Episode 19, Court is Adjourned. After the conversation with his friends, Job finally has had enough of all the accusations towards him. He tells him that he is going to hold on to his integrity because he knows, without a doubt, that he is innocent. That he was just someone that took in all the blessings of God, but passed them on when he helped the orphan and widow, became feet for the lame and eyes for the blind. Job remembers the day that he was once honored in the community, but now he is just an old broken man that people make fun of. He goes on to say that all of his friends and community are his enemies now, and that they are out to get him by setting traps and snares for him. And with that, Job then begins to confront God, or more so, presents his defense and all that has befallen Job undeserved, asking God how is it that he has forgotten him and turned his wrath towards him. Yet before going any farther, Job ponders and says that if he has done anything wicked, let it be known to him, so that he can repent of the unknown wicked that he has done. Because if Job gave in and repented to some sin that he had never done, like his friends said to do, he would have compromised his faith in that he was only seeking God for the blessings rather than seeking God for himself. And because God is the ultimate judge, Job presents his case to God. There was no one else that he could turn to for help. And although Job has battled back and forth within himself of holding on to God and knowing that he is a just God and being in the middle of a great affliction that is causing his life to be unbearable. But finally, Job does come before God with his afflictions and hardships, trusting that God is a true and just God. What is interesting, instead of Job's friends trying to correct him, they stood speechless at what Job had just done. But what happens next is another man steps into the scene, so to speak, named Elihu. In Job 32 verse 2, it says that Elihu was the son of Barachel, the Buzzite, the family of Ram. Elihu means, he is my God. It is thought by some that Elihu could have been a descendant of Abraham's nephew. In Genesis 20 verse 20 and 21, it says that Abraham's brother had a son named Buzz, which would be the forefather of the Buzzite clan. He speaks after Job and his friends because he was the youngest in the group and allowed for the elders to talk. In those times, the elders were seen with wisdom. He would also apologize to the group because of his youth and speaking out against them. However, Elihu's speech comes after both Job and his friends are done talking. And it says in verse 2 and 3, that he was angry with them and he would rebuke everyone that was present, Job and his three friends. He rebukes the group and starts out with them declaring that none of his friends have been able to address Job's complaints towards God. Therefore he decides to do so, and believing that the words that he is about to speak are directly from God, Elihu rebuttals Job's arguments by saying that God uses dreams and afflictions to help instruct people. But he also tells Job of one that is a mediator for him, that he would take up the case for Job so that he would no longer have to. Elihu also tells Job about how this mediator will save a person from being taken over by death and restore the person's life and righteousness by paying the ransom for them. 
The word for ransom here does not necessarily refer to money, but really anything that would be accepted as compensation for the person. And that this mediator zealously fights to restore people back to righteousness that they, on their own, will never have. This mediator will redeem those that have sinned, and by this, the person will be drawn closer to God. Elihu will go on to say that God is a just God, and that he does bring judgment upon the wicked, unlike what Job said about God, and he does not do evil. However, Elihu would pass judgment upon Job, just like the others. This time, though, it isn't about a secret sin that the rest thought it to be. But Elihu judges Job's claim to be innocent and his complaint against God are the sin at hand that needs to be addressed. Ultimately, Elihu tries to convince Job to look towards God and that God is the ultimate power, as he uses a storm to describe how powerful God is. However, he reminds Job that God is compassionate and wants to have a relationship with him. Instead of trying to bring his case before God to prove his innocence, Elihu tells Job to just go to God and learn from him as the ultimate teacher of wisdom, because no one is greater and wiser than he is. And with that, a storm blows into the area where Job and his friends are gathered together, very well possibly being the storm that Elihu could have used to explain the power of God to Job. From the storm, God speaks directly to Job. In Job 38 verse 1, it says that Yahweh answered Job. The name for Yahweh here is usually the name that is used in Exodus to refer to God, a God of redemption. Job finally gets what he was asking for. God comes to Job as in a court, God takes the offensive side and interrogates Job. However, God doesn't come at Job for saying that he was innocent, but because Job thought of himself as a wise man that held much wisdom and that could stand before God and reason with him. And with that, God tells Job to gird up his loins, a term that could be used when fighting or wrestling with someone. Because Job questioned the way that God ruled the world, God starts out by interrogating Job on the fact of whether or not he was there when the earth was created and all of its foundations were set in the correct place. Painting a picture, God almost describes a construction site of the whole universe, much like a supervisor would overlook the construction of a building. God kept oversight of the creation of the world and did the work by setting the foundation, setting the dimensions, placing the sockets and the cornerstones which would be used to build the walls and the roof. He then paints the picture of himself being a midwife that brought forth the seed, but at the same time he was the one that knitted it together, just like he knits together the body inside of the womb. But after bringing forth the seed, he sets the boundaries and the doors for the limits of the ocean waves could reach. He then asked Job if he has seen his storehouse full of snow and hail, or if he has seen the depth of the seas. How about the way that everything in creation works, such as the rain, snow, and bringing forth of plants on the earth, or the stars in the heavens? To all of this, Job had no answer for. But God continues by pointing out that he cares for and is in control over the animals that Job sees. Animals such as the lioness, the ravens, the mountain goat, the wild donkey, the wild ox, the ostrich, the horse, birds of prey, all birds and animals that God has created and controls. In this first conversation with Job, God makes it a point to show that he governs wisely and just it and compassion the things that he created. After this, God then invites Job to correct him. However, Job is beginning to realize who is he in comparison to God. 
In chapter 30, verse 4, Job says, I am small, and how can I answer you? The word here for small is without honor. As one of the complaints against God by Job earlier was that because of the affliction God has taken away Job's honor. But now Job has realized that his honor was nothing in comparison to the all-powerful God. Yet Job still holds on to his thought that he is innocent and is still bringing his case before God. So God continues to question Job. And again, God says, gird up your loins, as he was about to challenge Job's thinking once again. The next question that God asked Job is regarding Job being innocent. And God goes at Job for this. God says that by Job saying that he is innocent and coming against God for the afflictions, Job has claimed that he is innocent and condemns God. He condemns God for being an unjust ruler, which implies that Job knows more than God. And this is what God challenges Job for, because when Job complains about his afflictions, he begins to walk on the path towards self-righteousness and pride in his deeds. So God asks Job if he has glory and splendor like God does, the same type of glory and splendor that a king would have. And if he did, would Job rule like God? Because if Job did rule in a kingdom like God had, then like it says in Job 40 verse 14, Job wouldn't have need to have God around. The path that Job is on is the same type of sin that Satan committed when he thought that he would be a better God than the all-powerful, true God, pride in oneself. To dissuade Job from thinking this way, God begins to tell Job how powerful God is. To show this to Job, God describes two different creatures. One is being the Leviathan, which is a sea creature that we looked at in the previous episodes. The other one is the behemoth. And just like the Leviathan, scholars try to reason that the behemoth was some type of animal that is still around today, such as an elephant or a hippo. The word behemoth is a common Old Testament word that is used to reference to a beast. However, it has been said by almost all scholars that the word itself in this passage has a majestic meaning almost made out to be a colossal beast. The description of the behemoth is in Job 40, verse 15 through 24. God describes the creature like it is an ox that feeds on grass, that is strong with a tail that sways like a cedar tree. A cedar tree can grow to be over a hundred feet tall. That's not a small tail. Its bones are like bronze, and its limbs are like rods of iron. In verse 19, it says that this creature is the first works of God, and that it ranks first among the works of God or it is the chief of the ways of God, depending on the translation of the Bible. But some scholars make this out to mean that it was one of the largest, if not the largest, animal that God made. God then goes on to say that the mountains bring the produce for it, and the wild animals play near it. It lies under the tree and hides in the reeds in the marsh. It isn't alarmed when the waters of the river surge because it is confident in its strength. Can anyone capture the beast? This is how God describes the beast. Again, many scholars believe it to be an elephant or a hippo. This thought goes all the way back to the 1600s, in which the behemoth is thought to be one of those two modern animals. Another reason that it is thought to be a hippo is because it's thought that the word behemoth comes from an Egyptian word that means ox of the water. And the reason that people think that it's an elephant is because the verse talking about its tail is thought to be translated to mean trunk. However, God would then later talk about the animal's nose a couple of verses later. 
nothing about it having a trunk. Plus, the word for tail is used elsewhere in the Bible, all referring to the back end of something. It isn't until recently that some scholars have begun to challenge the thinking that it is one of these two modern-day animals. The biggest reason that scholars are challenging it is because in Job 40 verse 17, it says that its tail is like a cedar and its thighs are sinew together. Although some just reference this to be God talking about the male creature's genitals and the thighs its testicles, thus the verse must be about the creature's ability to mate. But if the verse itself is taken based on what it says, the tail is like a cedar. Elephants and hippos hardly have tails at all, and they sure don't look like trees. Now there are some scholars that believe, just like the Leviathan, that the behemoth is just another mythical creature. But the way God describes it, along with the other real animals in his conversation with Job, doesn't make it seem plausible. Plus, why would God use two mythical creatures, the behemoth and Leviathan, to describe how powerful he is to Job. Telling Job that as God he would conquer two fake creatures is not all that impressive. With that in mind, what then could the behemoth be? Taking another look at the verse 17, where God talks about the tail of the creature, it is thought that when God talks about the tail as a cedar, he is referring to the size and strength of the tail. Therefore, the animal that God is describing to Job could very well be extinct now. In more recent times, scholars are beginning to believe that the behemoth was a dinosaur, which makes sense because in the 1600s, they wouldn't have had the knowledge and fossil history that is available nowadays. Therefore, it would all have been based on what was seen around them alive. The type of dinosaur that scholars believe the behemoth to be is a type of seropod, a species that is known to have very long necks and tails, sometimes called long necks. God uses the behemoth and the leviathan, both extremely strong and fearless creatures, as examples of types of things that submit to God. God challenges Job, saying that if he were such a wise ruler, then both of these creatures would submit to Job as they do to God. And with this, Job finally realizes that he is not all wise, as God is, and that God is a just God. Job's whole demeanor changes. He fully submits to God being the wise and just God that he is. And in this, he realizes that he has encountered the all-powerful God and thus removed all the questions that he once held for him. Because of that, Job worships God. After the conversation between God and Job, God then turns to Job's three comforters and rebukes him. God tells them that they have spoken falsely of God, unlike Job. You see, Job was wanting to search out for the truth of why he was under affliction. And although it started going towards him trying to prove himself righteous, it did bring him closer to God. Whereas his friends gave the bad advice to seek God just to be set free from the afflictions. They were telling him to do exactly the same thing that Satan challenges God with at the beginning of the book. That Job would only seek God for the blessings and not for God himself. This is why God rebukes them and says that their advice was folly. So God told Job's friends to bring animal sacrifices to Job and have Job pray for them so that they would not receive the punishment they deserve. What's interesting is that Elihu is not mentioned in God's rebuke. It could be that there was some truth to what he said and God didn't see the need to rebuke him at all. After Job submits to God and prays for his friends, God restores Job. In Job 42 verse 10, it says that God doubled all that Job had, and all of his brothers, sisters, and friends that had known him 
came and visit Job, breaking bread together or coming together to have a meal with them. They each gave Job a coin and a gold ring, either an actual ring, nose ring, or an earring. In Job 42, verse 12, it says that Job's last part of his life was more blessed than his first part of his life. With 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, a thousand yoke of oxen, and a thousand donkeys. He even had more children, seven sons and three daughters. Although nothing is said about his wife, scholars assume that she is the same woman that bore Job's other children. Job was able to see his children's children all the way to the fourth generation. And much like the way that Abraham lived a life that was full and abundant, Job did so and then died. In the book of Job, the question is brought forth, why did Job suffer? Even Job himself asked that question. But God doesn't answer the question, at least not the way that we'd like it to be answered. When Job asked that question, God answers it with himself. Satan said that Job would only worship God because of the stuff, and that if it was taken away from him, Job would leave God. But Job didn't. Although Job had questions, it didn't push him away from God. It actually drew him towards God. Satan thought that Job was anchored to God by the stuff, and that is why he took everything away from him. But God knew the heart of Job. It isn't about the suffering and the loss of things for Job. It was about where did his hope come from, despite all the things that were happening. Taking a step back from the book of Job, it presents the question, and in the New Testament, Jesus answers it with himself. The book of Job isn't about why good people suffer because even Jesus says that those that pursue him would be persecuted. The book of Job is about where our hope is anchored, in the things of this world or in God, because that is why Jesus came. This concludes the book of Job. We'll be now starting the book of Exodus. So join us in episode 20, Egypt, as we take a look at the culture and history of ancient Egypt. Thanks for listening to the History of the Bible podcast. We'd really appreciate it if you were to take a few moments of your time and rate and review the show. And be sure to follow it too. Also, tell your friends and family. If you would like to reach out to us to leave feedback directly or to let us know how the show has impacted you, check out the links in the show notes. Until next time, remember that you are loved, special, and worthwhile.